Greetings, listeners. We figured this episode's topic is one that will be more unfamiliar than most to most of our listeners, and we spent a long time talking with our guests, so we have divided this episode into two parts. In this first segment, we lay down some background from Sai and Nye's personal knowledge and experience, and we will return to more direct discussion of the paper's contents in part two. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to Theory Neutral, the podcast about stuff languages do. I'm Aiden. I'm Logan, and today we're talking about feeling phonology, the conventionalization of phonology in protactile communities in the United States. Unfortunately, Jacob is not feeling well for our recording today, but we have two guests this month, Sai and Nye. Hello. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Sai. Uh, I am a conlanger, created the LCS and things like that. Um, and I've brought on Nye, who's a friend of mine who has worked in access technology and similar fields for deafblind people in particular, but blind people as well, and has a degree in linguistics and American Sign Language interpreting from Gallaudet University, and taught me most of what I know about being blind. Thanks for the introduction. So I am really excited to have Nye here to bring some personal experience to the topic of this paper. To start out, I'm just going to quote straight from this paper because I don't know how to say it better. They start out in their introduction saying, Over the past 60 years, there has been growing acceptance of the idea that the vocal auditory channel is not the only set of sensory motor peripheral systems that can sustain a phonological system. This article contributes to that shift, calling into question the very definition of phonology. We can ask, can the tactile modality sustain phonological structure? The results of this study suggest that it can. So that's a lot of like really fancy scientific neurological terms uh, in there. So basically what it's saying is that for about the last 60 years, people have finally realized that sign languages are like actually languages, and you can communicate through things other than making sounds and hearing sounds. Right. So like there's now general acceptance that you can also communicate by making signs and looking at signs, but could you potentially use other human senses to communicate information? In this case, Can you communicate by poking people and feeling yourself being poked or moved around or, you know, squeezed, whatever? Um, Ooh, wins. And, uh, yeah. (laughs) And the answer seems to be yes, so. Should we start with an explanation just of what tactile modalities are, like how blind people interact with sign language? Yeah, that would be great. Nye, you want to? Sure, okay. So blind and deafblind people who use sign language who don't have a usable vision or don't want to use their usable vision will use their hands or other parts of their body in order to receive the sign language by touch and through kinesthetic senses and proprioceptive senses. So possibly the most common example the general public is familiar with is that scene from Miracle Worker where Helen Keller is receiving tactile Mm -hmm. finger spelling with her hand. So if you imagine 
expand that, but then you expand that to full-blown sign languages, and then the topic of this podcast being that it expands even beyond receiving with your hands and becomes a whole full-body phenomenon where pretty much any limb or part of your body, like your torso, your back, can become a receptive area for receiving tactile-based language. So, for example, drawing on someone's back directions to the bathroom. Super useful. Or involving somebody's arm and co-signing together, and so on and so forth. So that's really what tactile and protactile sign language are about. Tactile sign language is more of just the hands, whereas protactile is more of the full-body immersive experience. Yeah, it, sort of the the impression that I've gotten from the paper is that protactile in particular is very much about like adapting in this case ASL, but you know, adapting a visual sign language to be not just sort of like making it work in the medium, but changing it so that it's fundamentally better suited for the medium. And I think the, the, what you mentioned before about using the the um, the receiver's arms and things, I think that's the most interesting part of this, where it's, it's like, because normally when you think about language, there is a clear distinction between the speaker and the listener, or the, you know, signer and the, the perceiver or whatever. There's a source and there is a recipient. And in this particular study, they're talking a lot very directly about this particular part of tactile sign, where the listener's body becomes involved as an articulator so that the listener can receive information from uh, kinesthetics, basically, which if you're not familiar with that, that is the sense of where your limbs are in space. Um, it's or, or proprioception. Yeah, that's another the, word that's for the it. term they use here. Yeah, and which is which is a lesser known human sense and not counted among the traditional five senses, but is a real sense. And there's there's definitely more than five senses. Um, but yeah, so if you like put your hand behind your back and you move it around, you know where your hand is, and that's because your body is telling you with kinesthetics. This is one way in which protactile sign has taken that and used that as a linguistic input medium where the speaker takes the listener's arms and puts them in various positions as part of the communication process using the listener's body as an articulator effectively. And probably Nye can talk a lot more about how that works than I can. Let me give a concrete example that'll help the listeners imagine. So, for example, the ASL sign for tree, you hold your forearm up vertically and sort of shake it a little bit with all your fingers extended. So basically your forearm is the tree trunk and your fingers are the branches. And so in protactile sign, if you were signing a concept like the squirrel ran up the tree, you would take the other person's arm and prompt them to hold it up vertically with their fingers extended so that they are the tree. And then with your hand, you would scurry up the tree with your two fingers and let them feel that squirrel running up the tree. So this whole system really kind of blew my mind when I found out about it. Partially because, like Aiden said, proprioception or kinesthetics is not like a sense that you learn about as part of the list of five in kindergarten or whatever. But like, it's clear that you get some input from your own sense of your body's position in space if you're just following, you know, if, if you're doing the simple thing where you are receiving signs by touch and following the signer's hands around in space, but that's still like passive reception, which at least to me feels very similar to, oh, I'm just listening, but I'm listening with my hands instead of my ears. Right. 
but this is not a, a passive reception thing. It's it's not, you know, the signer is moving their own hands around and relying on the receiver to follow them. It's the signer is actively manipulating the receiver's limbs to give them information through that channel specifically, which is just something I never would have thought could be possible if, you know, I, <laughs> if I didn't read about it actually happening and hear about it from Nye. So, um... Yeah, I just want to be—I just want to be super clear for our listeners that yes, that is a thing. <laughs> Two things I wanted to mention is that you know, experientially, it's really you're using a combination of your tactile and proprioceptive senses. Yeah, you're tuned into both surface skin-on-skin information and also to movement in space. So I learned ASL and protactile ASL after being blind, so I never had any visual ASL. And I grew up low vision, so even my visual context and understanding of the visual world is limited. So a lot of how I think of signs and understand them is how I, how they feel in my hands, the angles of my joints in my body. Mm. So that's how I map the movement when I think in pro-tactile ASL. And so it really is like you're marrying both tactile and proprioceptive. And the other thing I wanted to address about what you said is that it's both a combination of passive and active reception. There's a lot of communication where you are passively receiving the other person's signs, and then where that more co-signing interactive aspect comes in tends to be more with classifiers, or when you're depicting scenes, that's where that becomes a bit more heavily used, whereas conceptual signs and so on tend to be a little bit more passive. I'm not saying that strictly. You could find a way to co-sign a lot of signs. You know, I can decide to sign a word like culture either by having the person feel both of my hands or I can set up their hand as the base and then add the other piece of the sign to their hand. But in everyday practice, a big portion of it is passive reception that then toggles into that act of involving the other person's limbs and it just kind of goes back and forth. You know, you switch between both seamlessly in a way that makes sense. And some of it can also depend on individual preference of the person. Like being an interpreter and working with many different clients, I have some clients who prefer more involved signing and others who prefer more passive. So there's just a lot of variables that go into how active or passive you are through the conversation. Mm -hmm. I want to point out that uh, Edwards and Brentari in this paper do make that distinction. So most of what they're talking about is what they call proprioceptive constructions, which they explicitly identify with classifier constructions in visual signed languages. But then later, in the second half of the paper, they do talk about how these proprioceptive elements have started to be incorporated into other signs and not just classifier signs. So yeah, I think that's very much in line with what you were just saying. Yeah, I took Tara Edwards' class at Gallaudet when I was in my interpreting program, and one of the big shifts that I noticed even 10 years ago was with pronouns. Um, in visual ASL, pronouns are signed in that airspace, which is, you know, mid-air in front of your person, versus contact space, which is where you're touching someone's body. So in pro-tactile, when you sign you, you'll literally have the tip of your finger touch the other person's chest, which is much more clear to the person like, oh, you're referring to me, without making that contact point can be a little bit more ambiguous for a lot of tactile receivers of like, are you saying me or are you using a third person pronoun? That's a good segue to looking at some of the stuff from the literature review. Um, so for, for an introduction, 
Uh, they say, just as spoken languages require adaptive measures to be perceived by deafblind signers, or just regular signers, so that, that's what the fingerspelling alphabet is for, um, adaptations and innovations are necessary for the perception of visual languages by deafblind signers as well. Um, those adaptations may not enable full access to the message. Uh, Reed in 1995 found that deafblind signers received ASL visual sign language with only 60 to 85 percent accuracy, and the largest source of errors was inaccuracies in the reception of the phonological parameters of ASL. Um, that that to me feels very much like um, it's similar to the problems of trying to receive oral language visually, like lip reading is a thing, but anybody who is actually good at lip reading will tell you that it's not super accurate. <laughs> no. ASL exists, at least in part, because lip reading is not sufficient. Much as the oralist would like otherwise. Yeah, so in both cases, it's sort of like taking basically a peripheral effect of producing language in one medium and trying to make that the primary way of receiving it in a different medium, which doesn't work super great because it's a peripheral effect. Yeah, so in their literature review, they go over a bunch of other studies that have looked at how different sign communities have adapted to the tactile modality in different ways in different sign languages. So tactile Swedish sign Sign language uses different body positions for monologues versus dialogues, and I went and looked into that a little bit deeper. Um, it's a distinction between whether you're using one hand to receive or two hands to receive. Swedish Sign Language also uses quote-unquote co-constructed forms between the sender and the receiver, just like we're talking about in this paper about protectile ASL. Tactile ASL has previously been observed to avoid pointing signs, which is uh, kind of what you were just talking about, Nai, with adapting pronouns. Tactile Auslan eliminates non-manual features and adopts new manual features to handle turn-taking, because, like, you can't feel somebody's face unless you actually go and feel their face, uh, which is, you know, awkward. <laughs> Which I may have done. Other things, manual yes and no signs have increased frequency, again replacing non-manual expressions. Tactile Italian sign language tends towards sequentialization, so taking stuff that is simultaneously articulated in visual sign and turning it into more, you know, linear patterns. And Edwards and Brantari in this study have seen a lot of the same shifts in protactile ASL. There's another paper, a later one, um, called The Grammatical Incorporation of demonstratives in an emerging tactile language by the same authors. It goes over a lot of the same material as this article, but focuses really specifically on that deictic stuff and how different types of tapping have been used to re-encode stuff that you just use pointing for in visual ASL. That brings up a point I wanted to make, too. A lot of the pointing signs that get avoided in tactile and protactile are the ones that require a visual context. So in visual ASL, if both participants are sighted or have significant usable vision, it makes sense to point at a sign that both of them can see and be like, ha ha ha, that's funny. But in protactile, you'd have to, like if one person is sighted and the other is blind, the sighted person would have to describe the sign, what it says, and then be like, that's funny. You mean a literal, like, metal sign, not a sign as in sign language. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> I, 
Yeah, meaning like, like Dexus requires a shared visual context, which obviously doesn't exist if you have one or two blind people involved in an interaction. Mm-hmm. And then you can have a shared tactile context, like I provide technology training in ProTactile ASL, so a lot of times the shared context will be the Braille display <laughs> that the client is learning how to use. And for those that don't know, that's an electronic device that attaches to a computer or Bluetooth pairs to a phone and shows on-screen text in real time in refreshable braille. But the point being is like I can guide the client's fingers to the buttons and then be like that's dot one, dot two. So that becomes a form of tactile dexis. But I also notice that a lot of deafblind receivers prefer to create a pro-tactile dexis on their own body. So sometimes I'll set up the braille display layout on their thigh or their knee rather than only going back to the actual device itself. That's really interesting. So there's, there's sort of like a preferred use of of sort of analogous tactile space rather than just relying purely on the actual tactile space that's being discussed. Yeah, and I think part of the reason for that is because their fingertip can feel the relative location of the buttons, but so can their thigh. And then they're not only relying on kinesthetic, but they have that additional tactile reinforcement. You can also make it a lot bigger. Yeah, that too. Whereas on the device itself, they have one-way tactile, only their fingers feeling the button. (laughs) That makes sense. They have to lean heavier on sensitive kinesthetic perception of feeling the subtleties of moving over a little bit to each button. That makes perfect sense. Things like that. Yeah, so you're taking that spatial thing and you're giving it to them in a more sort of tangible way because, like, yeah, you have tangible sense of space with your just kinesthetics, but this is a little bit easier. It's a little bit easier to perceive when it's actually, like, touch than when it's purely kinesthetics. Right, and then when it's two-way touch of my finger feels my thigh and my thigh feels my finger versus one-way touch of my finger feels the button on the device. Yeah, that makes sense. And then if Nye wants to tell a client, well, this is what you're going to feel, Nye can tap dot where the, you know, dot one, dot two, et cetera, would be, as it were, on their thigh mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to indicate, well, this is what you're going to feel for such and such output without having to instead, I suppose, you would guide them to the buttons and either have it do it for real or uh, have your fingers under their fingers and mock the braille being up or something like that. Some sort of abstract action is kind of necessary. Like I'll go and press several keys together and and let their fingers feel what I'm doing. Um, But a lot of clients find more clarity if I either touch the fingers that should press the buttons Mm -hmm. rather than them feeling my fingers pressing the buttons. Because tactually it can be a little confusing to have like six buttons in a row and you're like, oh, is that the third button or the fourth button? Yeah, that makes sense. But it's much clearer if you just touch, like, the index finger or the middle finger of the person. The other thing that some clients find more clarity is if I demo the cord, the buttons I'm pressing together, on their thigh. Because then they can feel all three fingers at once and their relative position. That makes a lot of sense. But it also just depends, you know, some people don't want, they don't like all that tactile on their thigh or something. You know, people have different limits of where they want to be touched, too. That leads into a, a decent quote from another one of my side references here. This is from Tactile Sign Languages, which is a chapter in the Handbook of Pragmatics. Tactile communication requires the creation of norms surrounding what is or is not appropriate touching that are often radically different to those of the wider community. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Mm, yes. Yeah. yeah. And you, you have to decide how much of that you're comfortable with. Right. So my approach is I always check in with each person about where 
I can assume that in general they're okay being touched, and then I'll also check on a day-to-day basis. For example, I have some clients who I work with where I know that I can set up classifiers on their forearms, and that's fine. And I know the back is fair game, but if I want to do something on the chest or the lap, then I ask. I have some clients who don't want to be touched anywhere past their wrists, and I'll do any sort of protactile setup will be within the palm of their hand. So it just in like deeper protactile communities, there is more of an assumption of like anywhere is fair game. So you know that's something that's been there's been internal discussion of that as well within the community of like well, how much touch is too personal, like presumptuously without asking. There's different schools of thought there of like ask before versus other schools of thought of like if we're using protactile, it should be assumed I can touch you on these places. Yeah, I wonder if those sorts of norms will, over time, become a little bit more predictable per person. I mean, obviously you have the situation where people enter this community at different stages of their life, which is not a thing with most spoken languages, um, certainly not at the, the proportions that you have with, like, deafblind situation where, you know, somebody maybe wasn't deafblind for a very long time and now they are, and so you can't just make all the same assumptions with them because they're just going to have to take time getting used to things. But I could also see, like, you know, over time, the expectation is just, this is just how you live and how you function if you want to use this system. And so you're going to have to get used to it, and people are going to start assuming that you're used to it. And so, you know, rather different from everybody's at a different place for now. Yeah. Well, the basis of this paper that we are basing our discussion on is the conventionalization of phonology. And this whole idea of what are appropriate places for touching seems like something that is not yet conventionalized, but certainly could become conventionalized and encoded in the phonology. I would say it's conventionalized in pockets. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a significant amount of variability between those pockets. So I would like estimate Seattle has the most conventionalized, highest degree of touch. When I was in D.C., it seemed like forearm, back, and the part of the thigh that's closest to the knee were pretty fair game for most people. But when I moved out to California, I learned very quickly that there's way less consensus on those areas being touched. And a lot of the deafblind people I interact with in tactile are much more just like hands only. So it just depends on region and even just the background of the person. Uh, you make a good point that most people in this community grew up in deaf-sighted culture, which I would say has slightly more leeway in terms of how you touch people because there's touching to get people's attention and so on. Mm-hmm. It's still a big leap to switch to deafblind norms. And a lot of with protactile, it's also a philosophy and a culture and a mindset. So, for example, when I'm using protactile with somebody, I'll let my foot touch their foot or my knee touch their knee just so that they have a sense of my presence. Yeah. Because when you're totally deafblind or you don't have usable vision or hearing, your sense of somebody being there is through touch. Whereas with like a client who's, say, been hearing sighted their whole life and is just now having some mild vision and hearing changes they would be freaked out if I was just like, my knee was touching theirs, you know? So it just depends. Yeah, it's it's, it's just a different situation, yeah. So I read an article about Auslan. Uh, So let's see, Misunderstanding and Repair in Tactile Auslan by Louisa Willoughby. She talks about the conventional body positions that you use in tactile signing in in the uh, tactile Auslan community. And this kind of connects with the the tactile Swedish study that uh, is in their literature review as well. But in that paper, they explain that 
at least in in the tactile Ostland community, people do not sit directly across from each other, but they will sit partially side by side so that their legs are next to each other, precisely for you know what you were just talking about, Nai, to to establish the feeling of personal presence and give a reference for where the other person's body is. Yeah, a lot of that's very popular in the U.S. too. Um, there's two leg configurations that I would say are the most common. One is that side by side. So, for example, like my right knee would be touching the other person's right knee. But I've also seen some people prefer kind of that. Uh, how do you describe that? Where one leg is in between the other two legs interweave because the side-by-side configuration is a bit more respectful of personal space and it feels a little less intimate, but it's a bit harder on the spine, especially in the lower back. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Because you kind of have to twist a little bit. Some people prefer the interweave because your spine is a bit straighter. And, you know, with tactile conversations that can go on hours those details in the ergonomics really matter and you really start to feel even the slightest shift. A lot of it's also about ergonomics and what's a comfortable positioning. A lot of times when I sit down with someone for PT, the first thing we'll do is like adjust the chair height. (laughs) Another common configuration when you're doing one-handed tactile is to kind of sit catty corner. So it's almost like I usually find the corner of the table is the best setup for that. So you're about 90 degrees from each other because for one-handed signing, that's a bit easier on the joints of the arm and the shoulder, but that's a little bit less of a protactile approach. But you can still like find the person's knee and add something protactile in that configuration, or use a lot of the feedback back channeling, like tapping and throwing a few signs on the person's knee from that configuration too. It's more of a protactile light configuration that some people prefer who don't like the deep dive into having mapping on their chest or whatever. On that point, I think it would probably be helpful to explain what back channeling is and like specifically how one indicates agreement, disagreement, laughter, acknowledgement, things like that. But also a question that I don't know is whether people have variation and preferences about how those are articulated, like laughter in particular. The back channel for that seems to me that for some people that could be an unpleasant sensation, and maybe there are variations in that. Thanks for reminding me. So back channeling, basically that linguistic tool that we all use to let the other person know that we're receiving information from them. So in auditory languages, it often crosses like, mm-hmm, right, yep, mm-hmm, mm. You make these little sounds that let the person know that you're hearing them, especially over the phone if there's an absence of visual cues. And then in visual sign languages, that looks like head nodding or signs back like agree or facial expressions. Like you can kind of scrunch your nose a little in visual ASL to show that you agree with a st- statement. And so in protactile, obviously, because you can't see your hear feedback. It's done by touch. So that sort of head nodding, just sort of, yep, I'm following you. You tap with open palm of the hand on the person's knee or their forearm if you're standing. This is simultaneous with when the primary person is signing. The person who's quote-unquote receiving still has this production. Exactly. And, you know, you can do squeeze or things like that to be like, yikes, or to just express general emotion. Interesting. So does that happen, like, if you're in a situation where you're listening and both of your arms are engaged in like a you know some kind of proprioceptive construction 
how do you then back channel if your arms are both engaged in receiving? Or do you just not then? Uh, usually the back channeling happens more in the passive mode of like, I'm following your signs and I hear what you're saying, but tactile, I hear what you're saying. Also, if you look at this paper, the person who's in the receptive mode and has their forearm being used to show the stem of a lollipop, uh, their left hand is on the speaker's right hand, I believe, and their left hand would be the one that's used to back channel. So like Nye was saying, to understand you tap, so their left index middle fingers would tap the speaker's wrist, just to go tap tap, just yeah. signal agreement. For reference, that's figure two in the paper. Yes. Yeah, I actually do that with strict tactile, non-protactile signers automatically without even thinking about it. It's very natural. Like my hand that's receiving, my index will just sort of tap and just taps to be like, yep, I hear what you're saying. You know, I'm following, I'm engaged. Yeah, fascinating. And then there's laughter and disagreement and so forth. And on that note, there are some different ways to show those. For laughter, it's fingertips lightly brush against the person, their knee or their forearm or whatever, so you feel that lightheartedness. Uh, whereas that same handshake consideration, you would add pressure and kind of grind your fingernails and be like, I'm annoyed or I'm angry or that's angering. Visually to onlookers, it'll look the same, but it's all about the kind of pressure that your fingertips are putting on the person. Another way that laughter is done, and this is one that's a bit more personal space and some people don't like it, is that you'll take the other person's hand and put it up to your own throat and that let them literally feel the vibration of your genuine laughter. Oh, yikes. So on the one hand, it's really nice because you're connected to the genuine moment, you know, you really feel that spontaneous expression of laughter. On the other hand, that's a yikes. But yeah, on the other hand, the throat can be a lot for some people. I, I might have had some experiences where people touch my throat without warning and I totally freaked out and, and like bolted from the room. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This concludes part one of our interview with Sai and Nai. Please join us next time when we conclude our discussion about Feeling Phonology, the Conventionalization of Phonology in Protactile Communities in the United States. Mm -hmm.